0: No, I'd like to ask you to do, a, uh, you to do me a favor. It's um, 11.45. 11.45. I don't do that for you. I do that for me. So I know when Because Tim's got to talk pretty soon around 2.30. And if I'm not done by then, I think he'll probably... <laughs> I'd hate for him to have a resentment, you know. Uh, in the spirit of anonymity, I would ask that all alcoholic uh, or members of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you'd look at your shoes for a minute. Uh, how many Al-Anon guys or guys that wish they were in Al-Anon are in the room right now? All right. All right. Honest, it's a program of honesty. So, and, and none of you alcoholics looked at your shoes, by the way, because I was watching. Um, one of the reasons I asked you to look at your shoes is because... Uh, I want to know how many other Al-Anon guys were in this room were at their wits' end when they saw an alcoholic woman sitting on a bar stool in front of us telling us a story. How many times has that happened to us Al-Anon guys? Wow, that was something. I, you know, she was made my heart pound when I saw an alcoholic woman on a bar stool. Because I, in my life, I've cured more al- alcoholic women's uh, ills in my mind when I saw them sitting at a bar, I just knew I was their savior. Um, I wanted to get up on a big old white horse and ride in and save them all. I had a sixth grade teacher that was a um, he was a cruel guy is what he was, and uh, i'm left-handed, so that means that I 'm in my right mind. <laughs> Uh, but he always thought left-handed people were slower than right-handed people. And he had a, a section out of the class. He had it sectioned off into the slow people and into the normal people. And being left-handed, I was put in the section with slow people. And um, one of the things that this, and by the way, he got fired the year after I was in the sixth grade, his <laughs> class. But uh, he was the class project was to draw a nude woman on a giant piece of cardboard and the Board of Education asked him to leave the system. But anyway, uh, which, and I was happy with that. Um, one of the things he said, though, that stuck in my mind, he said there's two types of heroes in the, in the world. There's a conquering hero and the suffering hero. And the conquering hero boards, gets on the white stallion and rides in and slays the dragon and carries off the damsel. And the suffering drag, or the suffering hero rides up Gets the hell kicked out of him by the dragon, but he still manages to slew, and then the maiden comes over and pats his head and holds his hand, you know. And that's, that's kind of what I always wanted to be, the suffering hero. And I I, I thought about that for many years, and until I got into Eleanor, I didn't understand why. Um, I want to thank the committee for inviting me to Kentucky. I've been to Kentucky many, many times. Uh, I was just barely 18 years old the first time that I came here. Uh, it was at the expense of the United States government. I was uh, newly in the service. I had just gotten out of basic training, and I, they shipped me here for schooling um, at Fort Knox. And I know it's an armor s- center, but the reason I was at Fort Knox was to learn how to drive a forklift. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the Army, always, the, the, the service always tells you they're going to set you up for a career. Well. For the next 40 years, that's what I did for a living, was pretty much drive a forklift. So I'm a professional, well-trained forklift operator. <laughs> I'm a retired Teamster. I had 30 years in the Teamsters when I retired. And uh, I'm also a retired uh, Asme employee. I was uh, 10 years as a special ed assistant at the high school uh, in Superior. It just gave me something to do well, uh, after I retired. Um, I grew up in Superior, Wisconsin. Uh, some of you are familiar with that town. It's at the western tip of Lake Superior. Uh, it's uh, Superior, Wisconsin, and Duluth, Minnesota. It's kind of like uh, Kentucky and Ohio. It's just right across the bridge is Duluth, right across the bridge is Superior. So uh, uh, it's a town that Superior had uh, 25,000 people and 89 bars. Um, <laughs> My wife Sandy and I, Sandy sends her love by the way, she knows a lot of people that are sitting in here today and I just talked to her on the phone before I came in and, and uh, she said say hello to the people I know and flip the rest of them off. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't say that, she'd slap me if she heard me say that. So, you know, there's anonymity, don't tell her I said that. Um, I love the eloquence of the speakers. There's been some poignant times with the speakers today, there's been a lot of eloquence, I've learned a lot of things and Uh, Forgiveness was talked about last night, and and truly I I heard something that I needed to hear there. And I think, well, probably the eloquence is going to (laughs) stop right now, Um, from my standpoint anyway. Um, Superior, Wisconsin, uh, it was a shipment town. Coal, lumber, uh, oil, we have a large oil terminal there, Um, iron ore, grain, well, ocean-going ships, I, I wanted to take a picture of one of the uh, lakers that's tied up uh, about a 1,000 yards from my house. It's a 1,000-foot ore carrier. And I, when I look out the kitchen window around uh, January, uh, some morning I'll come down to the set to get the coffee going. I'll look out the window, and I can see the lights of the superstructure as it's backed into the dock. And I say, I tell Sandy, "Hun, the neighbors are back. <laughs> And it's a 1,000-foot ore carry And I wanted to take a picture of it, but it was foggy on Thursday, and, and you couldn't get the whole 1,000 feet because you couldn't see one end to the other. That's the the uh, size of the vessels that come into our, our port. Um, I grew up on the wrong end of the tracks. Uh, literally, the north end of the town is the wrong end of the tracks. Sandy grew up about six blocks away from me, also on the wrong side of the tracks. And... Um, I loved it. It was a vibrant community. I had uh, houses of ill repute on each side of us and um, uh, bars up and down the street. And my mom and dad drank. We went to the bars. The first TV set I ever saw was in a bar. We used to go and watch the fights on, I think it was Wednesday night fights or Tuesday night fights, something like that. And uh, that's what we did. And drinking was just part of life. I, I loved my dad. He was a happy drinker. He made jokes and he laughed and he had a ball. Uh, on the other hand... Uh, I didn't like my mom when she drank. And my mom's 93 years old, and she still drinks, and I don't like her when she drinks. I don't like her behavior. I love her, but I don't like her behavior. And that's something that you people taught me many, many, many years, 30 years down the line, you taught me that. Love the alcoholic, hate the behavior. But I didn't understand that at that time. And when I married an alcoholic, I didn't understand it then either, and I hated her. But I... Actually, I loved her, but no, wait a minute, I hated her. And when we got into our respective programs, I learned that I loved her and I hated the behavior and that I wasn't crazy, but I'll get into that later on. Sandy, I'm not going to tell her story. Some of you have heard it. Some of you may hear it uh, at some point in time. Uh, Sandy was raised in an alcoholic home. Her dad itself admittedly was an alcoholic. He had the plug in the jug for 40 years. She had. Uh, she comes from a family of five children. And mom and dad, and it was a screaming, insane, so a dry house. There was unrecovered alcoholism in that house, and to this day there's unrecovered alcoholism in that family. And love was never mentioned. I grew up in a house where love was talked about all the time. Love, 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 love. Even today, my mom will call me up and say, "Can you give me a ride to the store? I need some milk." And I'll say, "Okay, ma, what time do you want me there?" "Oh, 11:30." And I love you, mom. I love you, son. I love you son, I love you mom, I talked to my brother on the phone, I love you Jim, I love you Chuck. Love was always mentioned in our home. Love was never mentioned in the home of my prospective bride. And she grew up not hearing love at all. The door would slam, the bedroom door would slam shut and then the makeup would be made and then they'd come out. And everything would be okay until the next awesome, gruesome silence in that house or the awesome, gruesome screaming in that house. And I didn't grow up that way. What arguing I did, here in our house usually happened after drinking. You see, my life was affected by someone else's drinking. Were they alcoholic? I have no clue. I don't know that. It doesn't matter anymore. Sandy's life was affected by someone else's drinking. Was there alcoholism in that house? Yes, there was, by their own admission. But it doesn't matter anymore. We found two programs of recovery. One is Alcoholics Anonymous for the Alcoholic in, my, in our house, and one is Al-Anon Family Groups for the Al-Anon person in our house. And there are recovery programs. Um, God damn it, I wasn't going to get on a soapbox today. You know, it bothers me when I hear people talking about, and usually it's alcoholics, but I some, sometimes I hear Al-Anon people saying this. My, my wife suffers from Al-Anonism. There is no such thing as Al-Anonism. Al-Anon is a recovery program for people affected by other people's drinking. And it bugs me when I hear that my wife or my husband was a screaming, crazy Al-Anon. Well, if she was going to Al-Anon, yes, perhaps she was a screaming, crazy Al-Anon. But if she wasn't going to Al-Anon, she was just a screaming, crazy woman or a screaming, crazy guy. So, um, okay, I'll get off my stand now. we grew up in that North End. Sandy and I did not know one another. Um, I went to uh, Sandy's four years younger than me. Thanks. Sandy's four years younger than me, and and uh, I went to school with her older sister. But when I was uh, 21 years or 20 years old, I got all the service. I went in when I was 17. I got out when I was 20. And uh, my friend Dale called up, and called me up, and asked if we wanted to go out to uh to a bar. Out in the county, and in Wisconsin, I don't know what it's like now in uh, here down here in Kentucky, but in Wisconsin it was a, a um, 18-year-old law that bars out in the county, if they only served beer, could serve 18 years old, 18-year-olds. In town, you had to be 21 to drink in a bar, whether it served beer or whether it served booze. So consequently, a lot of us kids would drive out in the county. We put it was nothing to put on 150 miles a night driving out in the county and drinking at different county bars. And uh, this one particular night, Dale called me up and he said, you want to go have a beer at Clara's? And I said, yeah, okay. So we jumped in his car and headed on out there. And, and um, we were sitting, just, just had just ordered our beer, and the door opened up. And Dale's girlfriend, Nancy, came through the door, and she had this stunning woman with her. And as they were coming towards us, it was like they're going to sit with us. No, they're not going to sit with us. I hope she sits with us. I hope they don't see us. And in in the seven hours it took for her to cross that room, I was married to her, had a house with a white picket fence, three kids. She was wearing a black a black sweater filled to its maximum potential. <laughs> she had, she had a head of hair that stood about three feet up off the top of her head. This was 1966. It was frosted. She looked like a root beer float with legs and <laughs> coming towards us. When they got next to the table, and you see, I, I get nervous now. I spent three, two oh, two and a half years in France in the Army, and, and I was still 99.9% as pure as the driven snow, and, and here she is. I heard about that, those kinds of things, and I dreamt about those kinds of things, and my goodness, here she is. And Nancy said, Chuck, this is Sandy. Sandy, this is Chuck. And Sandy sat down next to my thigh. And uh, my th- we were wearing double knit at that time. And the sparks went between her hip and my hip. And during the course of the evening, she said, Chuck, what do you do for a living? And I said, I don't know what to do not knit. Here you go again, you idiot! You long-legged, skinny, man-breasted, cross-eyed dork. See, alcoholics don't have the don't have the uh, monopoly on bad feelings about themselves or lack of self-esteem. Uh, I have everything that you have except I don't have the the phenomenon of craving. And Sandy sat down next to me and we talked. And my God in heaven, I just thought, I have died and gone to heaven. And then she did something that she doesn't remember. I've always said, in all the years that I've been telling this story, I've always said she did something she doesn't remember. But the last time that we spoke up in Canada, she was sitting in front of a thousand people and she said, I have an amends to make. She said, Chuck, I remember. (laughs) She touched my toe with her ankle. If you're around 67 years old, which I am, on the far end of it, being touched on the ankle by a woman's toe was pretty much going all the way. I understood why I had those nocturnal emissions, and it was good. <laughs> Well, we, 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 the next weekend we double dated with Tom and, or with, uh, Nancy and Dale. We double dated. And then a few weeks after that we went out and we were like, we were like hands in a glove. We were two sick people looking for one another and we fit perfectly. And after that pretty much to the exclusion of our friends, we were together. We were together. We were together. And 9 months later we were married. It was January 21st, 1967. It was 38 below 0 in Superior, Wisconsin, the night we got married. Kind of like it was last week. And the week before, yeah, that's the way it is. So, no big deal except when you're in Kentucky and you see people go whoa. When I'm up in Canada and I tell that part of the story, they go, "So, eh?" But um We got married. And the drinking was, I mean, we drank. That's just what we did. We live in Superior, Wisconsin, where everybody drinks. You know, of course you think that. Everybody drinks. And I didn't think anything was wrong with it. You know something? There's a lot of people in this audience today that say, Hello, my name is blank and I'm alcoholic. When I was growing up, and until I got into my 30s, I didn't know people did that. I didn't know they said, hello, my name is blank and I'm an alcoholic. Because we didn't, I didn't know what alcoholics were. I lived on the north end of town. I lived on North 3rd Street. And beyond North 3rd Street were some tar paper shacks between there and North 1st Street. And in those shacks lived guys that had the, um, the bib overalls that somebody talked about, that Joe, uh, Joe talked about. Those guys wore bib overalls, and they wore dirty clothes. And they, they used to knock on our door, and my mom would open up the little uh, window that they had, and they'd say, would you like to buy some cream of wheat? Would you like to buy a bottle of grape juice? Because those guys would sell what they had to get booze. Those were the alcoholics that I looked at. And you know who they were? They were winos. One of the women that lived down in that neck of the woods, she lived with those guys. And she I didn't know this at the time, but she babysat Sandy. She was a wonderful beautiful woman who has Down syndrome. She was an alcoholic woman. But in those days, we didn't call her that. We used to, I used to stand on the corner when she'd walk by, and her name was Mabel. And I'd say, Mabel, Mabel, you got legs like Betty Grable. Ha, 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 ha. And she'd say, arsehole, tarsal, kiss my arsehole. And we'd laugh. Mabel was a beautiful woman who was an alcoholic who loved kids, and who was loved by everybody, and who died with dementia at 86 years old. I didn't think alcoholics were doctors. I didn't think alcoholics were truck drivers. I didn't, Alcoholics were people who didn't have work that just sat in a bar and drank beer or wine. How could my wife be alcoholic? She's a beautiful, vibrant young lady. When Sandy turned 21, she started drinking in town. And you may know this. Alcoholics, you probably don't know this, but non-alcoholics do know this. That there isn't an alcoholic sitting in this room that decided to go out and drink and become an alcoholic. If there wasn't somebody that forced them into it, they wouldn't have done it. And that's the way Sandy was. She was a lady that drank. We had a lot of fun drinking. We argued a lot while we were drinking. We had sex while we were drinking. We went to movies while we were drinking. We went to restaurants while we were drinking. Everything we did had to do with drinking. However, when she started drinking too much and without me, which kind of, kind of made me a little bit angry. Um, <laughs> as a as a sponsor of many guys, there's nothing that upsets me more than when a guy says to me, "She was really pissed off at me," and I was a little bit angry. Oh, really? <laughs> a little bit. Um, but this woman was the one that forced Sandy to drink. Her name was Squeegee. Well, that wasn't a real name, but (laughs) I don't know how she got the name Squeegee. I can only imagine. Um, The first time I met Squeegee, she was in a county bar and she threw a beer can at a guy and hit him in the back of the head with it and split his head open. And I was Sandy's best friend. And and I blamed her for, for making Sandy drink. And little did I know until Sandy sobered up and she was sharing her story at an open meeting and she said, that this lady, when they were 13 years, 14 years old, she bought. She had her sister buy Sandy beer, and so in essence, she did start her career with this lady. But I didn't know this at that at the time when we were actively uh, in our diseases. One night, and I'm going to share with you um, some insanity. I don't want to tell Sandy's story. I hope you don't think that I'm doing that. What I'm sharing with you is the insanity. Uh, that happens with a person that is not alcoholic. Alcoholism drove me crazy, and I don't have it. Alcoholism, alcoholism was hell in our life, and I don't have it. I wanted to kill myself because of alcoholism, and I didn't have it. It affected me. And you think that's you might think that that's um, specific to alcohol. Sandy has a disease called lupus. It could and almost did, kill her. Her disease of lupus affected me. But you see, that was socially acceptable to be affected by a physical disease, arthritis, lupus, cancer. Of course you're going to be affected by it. But yet if your loved one has alcoholism, society expects you to react in a certain way and not be affected by that alcoholism. And I can't say that I was not affected. I was terribly affected. So I want to share with you the insanity of a person that doesn't have alcoholism in their blood. I have alcoholism in my mind. We've got two beautiful kids. Nine months after we were married, thank God, uh, Sandy gave birth to a beautiful boy. Twelve months later, she gave birth to a beautiful girl. So we've got these two babies, and we're living in this house in the north end of town. And I'm there with these two babies, both in diapers probably, both in cribs, certainly, both sharing a bedroom up on the second floor of this little tiny shack that we lived in. And my wife has gone out drinking. She's gone out drinking to the apartment of the woman that made her drink. I hate her guts. Takes my wife away from me, forces her to drink. I hate her. I'm sitting in that house, my wife is gone, and I'm a guy. You see me now? I'm six foot four, two hundred and twenty some pounds. I'm smaller now than I've ever been. Especially at that time anyway. You see the hair on my head? I choose to have it this length. Um it used to stick out a lot. Joe shared about having an afro. Well I had this big this big curly mess sticking out, and I had a beard. Practically a full beard. And I was a big intimidating guy and my wife is gone. I'm supposed to be the boss. The man is the boss of the house. The woman stays home, does the cooking, and I do the I earn the money, and I'm the one that's supposed to be out drinking because I deserve to drink because I work for a living. And my wife is gone. So I'm sitting there thinking about this. It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm by myself. And I'm sober. And she's out drinking with a bunch of people. And by people, I mean both sexes. She's not home where she's supposed to be. I'm getting in that car and I'm going to go find her because I knew where she was. She wasn't too far away. She was at Squeegee's house because Squeegee lives on the north end. It's only about a mile. It's February. I get in my car and I drive to that house. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to grab her by her brunette hair and I'm going to pull her down those stairs. And I'm going to make an impression on these people that are in that house and they'll never ask her to have another beer with them. And I might kick some ass while I'm there. So I pulled up outside that house and I shut the car off off and I sat outside in that car and I could see the lights upstairs in the second uh, story apartment. And I'm going to go up there and I'm going to grab her by her hair and I'm going to go up there and I'm going to kick some butt. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. They'll be afraid of me because I'll show them who's boss. I'm going to do that. And I started up the car and I drove home. (laughs) I did nothing. What constructive thing did I do? What insane thing did I do? Who's insane? I left my babies home in cribs, newborn and 12 months old. I left those babies home alone at 3 o'clock in the morning while I drove downtown to get my wife out of a party. Who's the nuts? Who's the crazy person? Who's the nut? The the person that left their kids alone at home, stark raving sober, or the alcoholic that's sitting in this apartment drinking beer and having fun? I know who the I know who the crazy person was, and it wasn't Sandy. Who's the crazy person that when Sandy finally comes home, I put my hand on her hip after she comes to bed and say, I love you, hon, good night. And I hated her guts. I wish she was dead. I know who the crazy person was. It wasn't the alcoholic. My kids are a little bit older. We're in a different house. The same old story. Different house, older kids, same thing happens. And this happened all the time. It was just the way it was. I've got the kids to bed. When they're like four or five years old, they don't know how to tell time. Up in Wisconsin at February or January, whatever it is, it gets dark at five o'clock. You put the kids to bed. Yeah, it's dark, time to go to bed, kids. And they go to bed, they don't care. And I could watch all three channels on a television. I got one of those corn flour pots, those porcelain coffee pots, those corningware pots, and I'd have that sucker cooking in the kitchen. And I'm no virgin when it comes to drinking. I used to drink too. I had fun drinking. I almost killed myself drinking, as a matter of fact. But I've got that pot going. And I'm drinking that coffee, and I've got those kids in bed, and I'm waiting for that phone to ring that doesn't ring. My daughter comes to the top of the stairs, and she said, Daddy, I need a drink of water. And I go upstairs, and I get that beautiful daughter of mine a drink of water, and I bring her back into the bedroom tuck her in bed. And I bend down, and I give her a kiss, and she said, Where's Mama? And I said, Mama's gone. She's had a PTA meeting, and she's... uh, Watsons or some some party someplace she'll be home. Chris, go downstairs and little Chrissy. A little while later she's at the top of the stairs. Daddy, there's a boogeyman in my bedroom. I go upstairs with the flashlight and I go in Chrissy's bedroom and we look under the bed and she's got her little blonde head right next to me. And she we're looking underneath that bed and then we slide open the the, the uh, closet doors and we flash that flashlight in there. she says Chrissy, there's no boo- boogeyman here. We go in Chuck's bedroom. It's okay, honorable You're safe. You're okay. You just go back to bed and you go to sleep and have happy dreams. She said, Daddy, when's mama coming home? Shut up! You scream at that baby. Who does the alcoholic, or who does the kid think is crazy? The alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? The alcoholic comes home, and in our case, our case, the alcoholic comes home with candy bars, grape pop, and kisses. She gives those kids kisses and says, Good night, kids. I love you. Or is that, that crazy six foot four, two 250-pound hairy maniac screaming in her face, screaming at her because what was her crime? To ask where her mama was and what time is her mama coming home. My son's cowering in the corner of the bathroom, and I'm thumping him on the chest because that's what I was. I was a chest thumper. And he goes, Dad, I'm afraid of you. So, what the hell are you afraid of me for? I'm your father. You're scaring me, Dad. And I'm angry at him because he's afraid of me, because I'm pissed off at his mother. Who do the kids think is crazy? The alcoholic or the non alcoholic? That's the way our life went. I want to share something with you about decision making because it, it comes to mind that a lot of us people that uh, come into Algon, it's hard for us to make decisions. Um, we're heading up Stinson Avenue past St. Francis Church. It's Friday night. Sandy and I are going out and have a few drinks. And I said, uh, Sandy says to me, Where do you want to go tonight, Chuck? I said, oh, I don't care. It's up to you. I'm so sick and tired of making the decisions. Can't you decide where to go for a night? We want to go out. You've got an idea of where to go. Let me know where you want to go. I'm sorry, dear. And we go someplace where she wants to go. Well, next Friday night, we're heading up Stinson Avenue past the St. Francis Church. And she says, where do you want to go tonight, Chuck? I said, well, let's go to the crowbar. Jesus, you always want to go to the crowbar. Is that the only place we can go is the crowbar? Can't you ever think of someplace else to go? Yes, dear, whatever you say. Here I am. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, and you take it really personal. And so you come up with these yes and no answers. You come up with I don't care. You come up with whatever. You come up with if you want to. It's all right. I don't care. And the whole time in my mind I'm going... You are such a pain in the butt. And if we've been drinking, I'm hating your guts. Recently, within, I'd say, probably a month, I I learned something. I've been in Al-Anon for 31 years. And I keep learning stuff because if I keep coming back and I keep listening, I keep learning. And that's what's so awfully important to me. And that's what I tell the guys I sponsor Listen and learn. That's one of the primary things in this program. Sandy is, here's Here's what she will do. I don't dress myself, by the way. Everything that's in my suitcase was put in there by Sandy. I'm a a panel 32 delegate to to the World Service Conference in New York. That was back in the early 90s. I'm there for six days. Sandy packed my suitcase, and she's got baggies with socks in them, and each side in each baggie there's a little note that says the black socks go with the black pants that goes with the white shirt that goes <laughs> and and when I talked to her, here's what she said, I did it for a joke. yeah, yeah <laughs> right So anyway. Um, and that's, that's just the way it was. I mean, she, she, uh, she dressed me, and I, I was fine. I didn't have any decisions. Oh, yeah, I was going to tell you about this epiphany that I had. Um, it's a pretty good word for a forklift driver, don't you think? <laughs> um, she will say, do you want to go to eat Chinese, or do you want to go eat Mexican? And I would say, don't ask me two questions at once. I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't fathom two questions at once. Uh, it's a decision that I have to make. Or she'd say, um, well, should we go to the movie tonight or do you want to go to the open meeting? Don't ask me two questions at once. And I'm serious about that. You just upset me. God damn it, why can't you just ask me, do you want to go to the movie? And I could say yes. Do you want to go to the Alamo Club? And I could say no. But she wouldn't do that. She combines them. I'm at a meeting one night and somebody's sharing and all of a sudden it hit me. Do you want to go eat Mexican tonight? Or Chinese? You know what the magic answer is? I think I'd like to eat Mexican. It all come back to me. She wasn't asking me two questions. I I only need to answer one. But see, if I answer one, that means I have to use a sentence rather than a word. I have to say I think I'd like to eat Chinese rather than no. Yes. It's called conversing. I, oh really <laughs> you know, so I, I still keep learning things and I think it's just great because here's a problem that I've had for all these years and suddenly a month ago it was taken care of because I went to an Al anon meeting and heard somebody share something. I hated her and I loved her, and I, I felt bad about that. I had a death, wish, a death wish for her. There's a river in Wisconsin. Most of them, by the way, are quite pristine and clear. This particular river, because it runs through red clay country, is uh, looks like coffee. It's, very, it's a reddish-brown color, and it runs about uh, three-quarters of a mile from our house. And it's deep, and it's wide, and it's sluggish. And Sandy used to drive across it to go bowling. And I would fantasize about her driving a car in that river and drowning. That was my Friday night fantasy because she bowled on Friday nights. I would give her a kiss, tell her to be careful, tell her to be home on time, tell her not to stay out all night. And she would kiss me and promise me that she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she wouldn't, and she would. And we left and uh, she left on happy terms. And as the night progressed, my mind would start working and I'd start fantasizing about her driving into that river and drowning. And I'd be free to this mess that we had gotten ourselves into. The neighborhood women would come over and give me hugs. I'd find somebody I deserved and we'd live happily ever after. And then I'd pray, these are my, uh, some of my prayers. God let Sandy love me. God let Sandy be home. Within an hour, God let me get to sleep in an hour because if I fell asleep, I wouldn't have to have my mind blasting away like it would do. Those were some of my prayers, and then I'd, I'd fantasize her dying and be rid of it. But I loved her, but I hated her. I loved her Friday night when she, I hated her Friday night when she was at the bowling alley. And Saturday we'd be at the state park and we'd be walking hand in hand, and I loved her. I loved her so much. She was a beautiful intelligent, witty, charming person. I hated her at night because she was cheating on me. She was drinking on me. She was out on me. She was the same person. And I was the same person. And I loved her and I hated her. She'd come home and I'd get her to bed. And Well, sometimes she'd come to bed. Sometimes she wouldn't. One particular night she was outside. And this again is Who's Nuts. This is one of the Who's Nuts comics. She comes up to the door. You ever had an alcoholic come up as far as the door? Then they won't come in the house. And I had stayed up several hours to make sure that she came in the house. My butt hurt from sitting on the edge of the sofa looking down the street to see when she was coming home. She comes up to the door. She's not coming in. So I open up the door, the inside porch door, and I go out to the front porch. I said, get in the house. No. Get in the house. No. And now, see, if I would have been in my, my uh, psychological mode here, I would have said, you can't come in the house. Then she would have came in. <laughs> I hope I haven't given away any secrets just now. <laughs> so I said, you come in this G.D. house, or I'm coming out there and get you. No, you're not. So I blasted my butt right out that door, and I chased her down our street. We live on two dead-end streets. I'm chasing her around that damn neighborhood. The windows are... You know, the neighbors are... I'm in my underwear. She's fully clad. Who do the neighbors think is nuts? I know. Who's the one they heard screaming, ranting, and raving? Not the alcoholic. Who do they think is crazy? The alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? Sandy got a call um, in 1980, this month in 1980. And that phone call was that her one of her uh, siblings had tried to commit suicide. And uh, she got the call. And I might say here, and I'm not going to go any further than this, but in the alcoholic family, there are scapegoats. Sandy was a scapegoat in that alcoholic family. She got the call rushed to the hospital, and in the next couple of weeks, and there was absolutely insane behavior going on in that family. In the next few weeks, uh, this lady went into a psychiatric ward and from there into a treatment center. Part of the treatment center philosophy then was that the family, in order to participate in Family Week, had to go to Al-Anon. So Sandy started going to Al-Anon with her mother and dad, and was participating in the family week process at that treatment center. And I thought, this is pretty cool. Sandy's going to Al-Anon. She's going to learn how to do things. Perhaps she'll learn how to cook or fold the laundry or something useful. (laughs) I read about, you know, Ann Landers used to write about Al-Anon all the time. All these old ladies that wrote to her about alcohol problems, she always told them, go to Al-Anon. So I knew about Al-Anon. I knew all about Al-Anon. I didn't have to know anything about it. I knew all about it. I get a phone call on Tuesday night. It's my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law and I have a stereotypical mother-in-law, son-in-law relationship. She thinks of me and I think of her. So anyway, the phone rings and I pick it up. And there was no caller ID back then. still had a phone that did the little round thing and twirled it around to get the number. I pick up the phone and it's my mother-in-law. And she goes, do you know where Sandy is? Jesus, that's a bad spot for that thing. Well, you got some spastic big guy up here. It's a bad thing. That's another epiphany that just entered into my mind a couple weeks ago, but I won't get into that. About why I do what I about why I do what I do. Um, my mother-in-law is on the phone. Do you know where Sandy is? <laughs> up went this. Just this heat, you know, how you get that, when you get an unwelcome call, or you get scared, and you feel hot all of a sudden, and your ears get red. And when my ears get red, everybody knows. I had a woman at an al meeting one time. I'm sitting by the window, my back to the window. And this woman that looks like Janice Joplin is sitting across from me. And I swear to God, it was Janice Joplin's double. And she was this this hippie-type lady that was, was in the 80s, but she was still this hippie lady. And she's giggling as we're sharing, you know. Of course, I'm taking it personal. You know, I mean, she's got to be laughing at me, doesn't she? Everybody else does. So I'm sitting in this I meeting, and she's looking at me. She said, Chuck, I have to say this. She said, you're sitting in front of that window with your back to the window. She said, with your ears all red like that, you look like a Gold Cross ambulance. My sponsor wasn't at that meeting, but he heard about it in short order. You know, (laughs) just put me down. Woo. Anyway, um, my mother-in-law said, "Do you know where Sandy is?" And I said, "She's at Al-Anon with you." She said, "No, she was at Al-Anon with me." And she picked up her shoes and she picked up her one day at a time and she left the left the room. And we it was at an Al-Anon club. And she said, "Chuck, I think she went to an a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous." And I don't know where this came from, but I said over the phone, Mom, maybe that's where she belongs. And I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't considered that. I just knew that she drank a lot, we were having a lot of trouble, and I wish to hell she'd stay home once in a while. Maybe that's where she belongs. And it must have been where she belonged, because that was in like March of 1980, and Sandy's always gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. She's never not gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I want to tell you. Now, you alcoholics, if you don't have somebody in AA, you don't understand this. but hallelujah. It's going to be wonderful. Sandy's on AA. She's going to these meetings. She's going to learn how to cook. She's going to learn how to stay home. Our sex life certainly will have to improve. (laughs) Things are going to be great. I'm working in a grocery warehouse. I'm a teamster. The job that I've done, a trained, housebroken ape could do. I'm working in the freezer. I come outside. i got snotsicles hanging down from my mustache. It's 50, 60, 70, above zero. And I've been in that 12 below temperature thing for like 8 to 10 hours. I come out. I want to go home. I don't have the car because this newly self Admitted alcoholic has to have the car to go to AA meetings. She was going to like 90 AA meetings in 90 minutes. She just was just like... (laughs) And I'm looking at my watch, it's 3 o'clock, I get off work at 3 o'clock, I'm standing outside, I'm hot, I'm cold, I got snot dripping off my face. Where in the hell is this woman? Oh, I mean, oh Jesus, I don't want to say that. I don't want to get angry because she's not drinking anymore. She's going to A and A, and I don't want to make her angry. She might go out and drink, so And when she finally would pull up in my truck and she'd come to pick me up from work and I'd say, "What's for supper?" she says, "Supper, Supper. We're going back to the club. That was a new word in our vocabulary. It was this <laughs> 1609 club. It was it 405? 405. Okay, 405 Club. We, uh, Sandy and I have had the opportunity to be there. Well, that's what 1609 is like—a great big old house. She we "We got to go back to the club. I got to listen to uh, the, the uh, Joanne from Bahrain or something. You know, 48 years. so ah, my name is Jan. I quit drinking in 1946. So I get in the truck. I don't want to make her mad because she might go out and drink. Oh, good dear, let's go. So we go to the club. Now, I know you guys have Eleanor clubs, and this is back in 1960s or 1980. You walk up to that club. It's a beautiful old building. Beautiful. It was a mansion at one time. Walk through the door. Oh, this solid cloud of gray up to about 10 inches from the floor. And you can see these little pink things lighting up often. And you could hear the alcoholics chanting the Gregorian chant. (laughs) Great, give me a cigarette with a cigarette. And that was the woman alcoholic, you know. And I had quit smoking a couple years before that, so I was totally intolerant of cigarette smokers. We walk in that place, we sit down, and it's like everybody's got these cheesy grins on their face. What my father and I used to call a piss house grin. Why? I don't know, but that's what he used to say. We sit in there and we'd have this old cassette tape thing going. And she'd be listening to these tapes and I'd be sitting there. I was so angry, so upset. One day we're sitting out at a picnic table and she says to me, Chuck, I'm going to be going into treatment in June. She says, I may not be around we may not be together when I get out. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean we may not be together? She says, Chuck, we don't know one another sober. <laughs> Here comes that heat again. We do not know one another sober. I didn't know I didn't I didn't admit to that. That everything we had ever done had revolved around alcohol and suddenly there's not that's not going to be in the picture anymore. Not alcohol when we go to the movies, not alcohol when we go out Taverning, which that was, again, off the, off the thing. Not, not, not alcohol when we made love. Made love, had sex. We did not know how to be intimate with one another, and intimate was, was a three-letter word starting with S. We did not know intimacy. We did not know intimacy in sobriety or in drinking, for that matter. And she said, we may not be together. She had been telling me to go to Al-Anon, and I said, no way. I don't need Al-Anon. Well, after she told me that, I thought, I'm going to go to an Al-Anon meeting. It was Tuesday night. And she said, well, Chuck, you can ride with me. I'm going to the AA meeting. We went to 1609 John Avenue. She led me into that, room, into that building holding my hand. And then she said, Chuck, you're going upstairs. Second door on the left. I'm going into a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked up those steps. And I got to that door with a little white tag on it. And this was said from behind that door. They were going, Oh, Jesus. They're in there laying brown eggs and white eggs. and oh. Because I wasn't there for nothing like recovery. I didn't even know what that word was. I didn't know nothing about any steps or traditions or none of that crap. I just wanted her to stay with me. I didn't want her to leave me. So I, I went to go into that room and asked to God just happened. Everything else I've told you is a lie, but this really happened. <laughs> I, I pushed on the door, and it goes, roar, roar. The bottom would go in, the top wouldn't. And I swear, I fell into the middle of that room, and these women all went, oh, it's another man, it's another man, come on in, come on in, you know. <laughs> and my concern was, what the hell did they do with the other man? There was another man there. He's a little tiny guy, probably 110 pounds. I sat next to him because he looked to me like Hercules. There was about 20 women in that room, a lot of different kind of women in that room. And uh, they all shared. We had our meeting. I have no, I can't remember what was talked about. I just remember that that little guy said, I'm going to take next week's meeting. And I thought, I'm coming back to hear what he's got to say. There was a woman in there that was mentioned last night that uh, um, somebody, somebody's mother was in a meeting. Well, or somebody knew their mother. This lady walks up to me, and she's coming towards me, and she looks like this 56 Buick screaming down the highway. She's got these Coke-bottled glasses in her. She had this grin that went way across, and I could tell she's honing in on me, you know. <laughs> she's going to do this hit and run, and I'm just saying, I didn't want to be there anyway. And she's coming after me and she walked up to me and she went, Chuck. And I thought, how in the hell does she know my name? Cause I didn't say it. She said, I know your mother. Whoa. If you're new in a pro- if you're in a program and you see some young guy coming in there that's got a wet front on his pants and he's just nervous and he doesn't want to be there, don't walk up and say, I know your mother. <laughs> Wait until the guy gets a sponsor at least. So I started going to meetings, and this little guy was at the next meeting, and he shared a a bunch of stuff about his recovery. And, man, it fit. It just fit. And I thought, if that little guy can do this, I can do this. And that was the last time I saw him. He was working for the Census in 1980. He was counting heads in in Superior. When he got done, he went somewhere else. But it was enough to get me going. And I started going to Al-Anon, and this young guy came in that I knew, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and we didn't do anything. We never worked any steps or traditions. We didn't know what to do with those. I didn't, I didn't have any idea about that. And he left the program. He went uh, out, out west someplace. And then another guy came in that I knew. And he was an AA, but he started going to Al-Anon because we knew one another. We, 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 had, we went out to coffee together. It was mentioned earlier that sometimes you would go out to coffee after the, after the meeting. And I'd talk with Frank, and he'd talk with me, and he started coming to Al-Anon. And after he was there for a while, I said, "Frank, would you be my sponsor?" And he said, "I'll be your sponsor if you'll be mine." And we were the only two guys working in, we were the only two guys in the meeting. And so we sponsored one another. We worked through the steps together. He worked through his steps, I worked through my steps. We worked the traditions together. And, I, and I, in 1991, uh, around there, I became a delegate. I was Mr. Al-Anon. I knew everything about the program. You couldn't tell me nothing about Al-Anon that I didn't know. And I became infatuated with a lady in Al-Anon. And I became emotionally involved with this person. You see, today's reading, I hope for today, talks about higher power. And up above that, that, the, the reading, up above the page, what I have written in there is highest power. Because my higher power has to be my highest power. And I brought, I brought my higher power down to my own place. And, and in that that's why I got into trouble. I started running my own program. I started managing my own program. I wasn't practicing the third step. I wasn't practicing any of the steps. And I got into some serious difficulties. And Sandy said to me one day, she said, Chuck, you're endangering my mental sobriety. She said, I'm going to give you a choice. You've got a necklace on and you've got two precious stones on that necklace and there's only room for one. You make a decision on which stone you want on that necklace. And I went and ran to the phone, and I called Frank up, and I asked him. And at that time, we didn't have cell phones. So I'm standing out in the street corner, I'm talking to Frank, and, he's, and we met, and, and he says, Chuck, make a choice. I could not make a choice. Yeah, but what's going to happen? Well, Sandy might, and she, he said, Chuck, make a choice for you. But what about her? She, she might. Chuck, make a choice for you. What about the kids? The kids are going to feel terrible. Chuck, make a choice. I could not make a choice for Chuck. I could make it for everybody else in this room, but I couldn't make one for myself. Not a healthy one. I started working the steps, and I made that choice. I worked through my issues. I I had some professional counseling, and and I I understand where I'm vulnerable. Um, I understand that very well. And please, this is just me. It says in some places it talks about men sponsor men and women sponsor women. And I have to adhere to that policy. It's my choice. Um, I did a fourth and a fifth step on that issue with my sponsor Frank. I was sitting in my car one day and I had I had that fourth or that legal pad in my or sitting in my truck and I had that legal pad on my lap and I was working my working through the steps. I was on break from work. I used to go out there and do that. And um, things are kinda of going okay. Things are getting better. And I thought, why should I do, go through this stuff? This is, this is heavy things. I don't like myself sometimes. Why do I have to do this? Why can't I just put this aside? Things are going better. Things will be okay. Well, then a the guy's voice came into my head. There was a guy that was, um, was at, he used to come to our Tuesday meeting and he looked like Johnny Cash, all dressed in black, hair slicked back, you know, always wore leather. And he said, when it came his turn to share one night, he said, well, if nothing changes, nothing changes, I pass. Oh, what the hell is that? No, it took me ten minutes to say that. And as I was sitting in that truck and I was ready to put that legal pad down, that voice came into my head and it said, truck, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I picked that legal pad back up and I I completed my fourth step. And I did it with Frank. And shortly thereafter,wards Frank left the program. And I went out and got the sponsor that I have today. He's a neat little guy, a little romantic Frenchman. And I did those those four steps and those five steps again with him because I want him to know right where it starts, right where it comes back to. You know, with with my kids, I've got three kids. uh, My youngest one this month is going to be 39 years old. Those three kids, uh, two of them are in relationships with, with recovering alcoholics. And one of them's had a relationship with a with a young lady that uh, he was going with in high school, and today they're back together again and and have a uh, necessary relationship for who they are. And I, I, my kids are cherished, and they cherish people. My kids are loved, and they love people. I love my kids, and I love the people they're with but it's their lives, and I'm have to. i I'm just grateful for where those kids are today. We've made amends with our kids and all. I've been in Texas. My, my I talked to Texas, and my family's sitting out in front of me, and it's just like, man, I'm so happy for this fellowship and for the steps of this program and that you can make amends, living amends, and regain some of that, that peaceful, peaceful love that you have with your family. We're fortunate in that respect that we were able to do that, um, today Sandy and I share a relationship which is which is really special we, we, uh, we practice the traditions in our marriage and, and it's really great for us and, and uh, we're living a good program today um, my son Kurt is the youngest son when he was 13 years old my neighbor came, came to us and said uh, uh, Chuck uh, Kurt spent the night with Mike in the tent and uh, they were drinking in there, and Kurt puked all over the tent. Oh, Mike, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll go, well, let me go over, and we'll clean that up. And he says, um, no, no, that's okay. I've cleaned it up. No problem. I just wanted to let you know. So I got Kurt. I says, come on downstairs here. We went in the kitchen, and I told Sandy, I said, this is a man-to-man talk. It's got to be between the guys. I'll let you know when it's over. So Kurt sits down, and I start telling him the, the, the evils of drinking drugs. You know, the, the, what's going to happen and what could happen to him and that he shouldn't do it anymore. And that kid was so enraptured in what I had to say. He didn't blink. He just, his, his mouth was agape. And he was just looking at me hanging on every profound word that I said. And when we got all done, I said, you can go now. And he laughed. And I said, Sandy, you come in now. I said, that, that boy will never do that again. He said, I, said, he's, I explained how he looked to me, and I said, he, he took that all in, and I'm sure he took it to heart, and he's not going to do that again. And by the way, I, I did have 13 years in al at the time, so I knew for what I spoke. And Sandy looked at me, and he, she said in her best AA voice, she said, Chuck, he was stoned out of his mind. <laughs> And he's going to do that again and again and again. And he did. He poked and rubbed and snorted and drank and and choked. And whatever he could do to get high, he got high. Huffing gasoline, he stole my gas can. He chopped up my garden hose in little 18-inch pieces. He just did these bad, bad, bad things. And finally, when he was 18 years old, he came home one night. It was February. His birthday's uh, in a few weeks. He came home and he walked into our house and I had changed the deadbolt locks on the on the doors. Um, by the way, we were sleeping in a bedroom that had a deadbolt lock on it. I don't know how many of you people have a deadbolt lock on your bedroom door. I'm a wood carver. I have thousands of dollars in wood carving tools They are in my bedroom. Doesn't every normal house have the tools in their bedroom? Because <laughs> you can lock the bedroom door. Just make sure that you have the key. So he came walking home. When, uh, he came in the house. And you know... You taught me to love and hate the alcoholic. You taught me that I loved my wife, I hated the disease. You taught me that I loved my mom and I hated the way she was when she drank. When Kurt walked in that house, I said, Kurt, you can't live here anymore and use alcohol and drugs. He said, you're kicking me out. I said, no, Kurt, you're choosing by your behavior to be unable to live in this house. We cannot control your behavior. We love you. We hate your behavior. And your behavior is part of you and you need to leave. I handed him the the pillow and Sandy handed him the sleeping bag. And he said, Dad, where am I going to go? Under the bridge? And I said, Kurt, I really don't know, but you're not going to spend your night in this house. And he turned to me and he said, Dad, I love you. And I said, Kurt, I love you too. I wish you well. And I escorted him out the door. And I shut that door and I turned that double deadbolt lock. It was a keyed deadbolt lock. And he walked down the steps off the deck. And Sandy and I dissolved into each other's arms. And we cried. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, in, in, in Living with Sobriety, there's a paragraph in there. And I'm going to paraphrase it, and probably not very accurately. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon makes no claims to save our love of affairs, marriages, or relationships. What it helps us to do is make healthy choices, thereby having healthy relationships. And you people taught us that in order for us to be healthy in our bodies and in our minds, we had to get the disease out of our house that was still being practiced. We'd see our son walking up the street and we'd turn our heads because of that. what was going on with that young man. We had to look away. We couldn't look at him. My father-in-law got struck and killed by a car. And I went and got Kurt from the drug house that he was living in. He was living underneath the stairs of the, uh, in the house. I, I came and got him. I brought him home. He cleaned up. We brought him to the, the funeral. And within an hour, he was back out on the streets because uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Kurt, you're not ready. A couple years went by. He lived like that. And then one day a phone call came. And we expected a phone call. One day we got the phone call, and it was Kurt. He said, Dad, can I come home and live? And I said, Kurt, I will not have you in this house using drugs and alcohol. He said, I don't want to use drugs and alcohol anymore, Dad. I think I'm sick. If I come home and not use drugs and alcohol, can I live in your house? Can I go to your doctor? And I said, yes. Kurt was sick. Kurt was deathly sick. The doctor told him in my presence that if you drink or use drugs again, you are going to die. Kurt has an illness that could kill him today, but he's been sober for 12 years. But you know, that kid went back to school and got his high school education. He graduated summa cum laude from uh, University of Wisconsin-Superior with a 3.89 grade average. He graduated from Claremont University, California with a master's degree. He teaches high school in Los Angeles. He works with Students with disabilities. And the reason I say that is because we didn't do anything except make healthy decisions for ourselves and allowed our son to make his own decisions. And one of those decisions was that when he was going to die, and he bragged to us about when he was 20 years old, he wasn't going to live. He was going to die at 20. When he called us at 20 years old and said, Dad, I'm dying. I'm scared. I don't want to die. And he made the decision to change his life. He made the decision. And we were able to be healthy. We detached with love. We welcomed him back with love. That's what Elanon is to me. In one of our readings, it says, if you detach in fear, you return in fear. If you detach in anger, you return in anger. If you detach with love, you return in love. And that son returned to us in love. I talked to a group in California. There was like 5,000 people there. And I shared this story right up to the point where he graduated because it was a month after he graduated from Claremont. He's sitting over here listening to his dad tell his story, and he's crying. And Sandy's crying. And when you people got up and applauded, and afterwards when you got up and come to hug me, you went over to him and you said, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, Kurt. Keep coming back. Welcome to Al-Anon, Kurt. Keep coming back. And that kid one night uh, came home from a meeting, and Sandy was talking on the phone, and she was going on through this big book stuff. Page 188, page, uh, page 89, page 449. Page and I'm thinking, oh Christ, you got another pigeon on the phone. <laughs> but, when she hung up the phone, she said, "Your dad just came home kurt i'm leave- i 'm going to hang up. I love you and Kurt was going to Alcoholics anonymous, and occasionally he does. He just went and got uh, a ten year pin I think it is like uh, a year ago or so. Uh, the companions that he have are in a fellowship and it's- and life is good for him and i 'm grateful for that. My mom, who's 93, says, what do you keep going to those meetings for? You've been going there for over 30 years. Well, one day I came home from work and say I walked in the door and I could smell stuff cooking. Food was cooking. I told you, you guys in AA would teach my wife how to cook. <laughs> I walk in the door and my, my wife says, and she, when she calls me my love, whoa, she could say, Chuck, the dog pooped in your shoe, or my love, the dog pooped in your shoe, and I'd say, don't worry about it, it's okay. My love says it all. She says, my love, you go out in the front porch. I made your supper. I'm going to bring it in. So I went out in the front porch, sat at the little round table. And it's summertime in Superior, and the sun's coming through that, uh, those windows, and we had the, the windows raised up, and the breeze was coming in. Sandy walks in with mashed potatoes, um, um, uh, meatloaf and corn on the cob on the plate, sets it down in front of me, sets one down for herself. And we're sitting really close. I mean, we could still feel electricity coming through. Uh, glasses of water, with the, or glasses of milk with the water streaming down the sides. And one of us started buttering our our, our, pad, our corn, our ear of corn, and took the pad of butter and was uh, slathering it over the cob, turning the cob. The other one had that ear of corn and was running it over the quarter of butter, back and forth and rotating the cob. And then one said to the other one, that's not the way you should butter corn. And then the other one said, that's the way you told me to butter the corn. I would not have told you to butter the corn that way because it's not proper. You should butter the corn. You did tell me how to butter the corn. You told me that. I wouldn't butter the corn that way, but you told And we got into this open and frank discussion about how to butter corn. <laughs> and Eleanor is screaming through my head. And then all of a sudden I realize that I've got corn kernels spitting out of my teeth. <laughs> And the dog's over there catching them on the, on the other side of the table. And the L anons going through my head, and it was time for me to detach. Love, anger, fear. I was angry. I said, the hell with you. And I threw my corn cob down in the middle of my mashed potatoes, and there's where it landed. Floom! I said, the hell with you. And I walked down to the bay. And I, we live right on Lake Superior. I walked down to the bay. And I'm down there, and there's a blue Huron. It's got its neck arched back. And all of a sudden, boom, it goes down, and it gets a fish. And I thought to myself, you lucky bugger, you got your supper and I don't have mine. <laughs> but then I thought, well, it's cool for you because you don't have another blue heron standing next to you going, head first, I'll swallow the fish head first. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a walk. and I, As I was standing down by the Madge River, the same river that I fancied Sandy driving into, a fire truck and an ambulance and a cop car went by on the highway. And just for a split second I thought, I hope to hell she thinks I jumped in the river and are coming to pull me out. See, the reason I keep coming back to Alan is because my serenity, like the price on a new car or a box of potato chips, is subject to change without notice. (laughs) You know, I got it. No, I don't. (laughs) I got it. Stub your toes, son of a... (laughs) Subject to change without notice. So I started saying the serenity prayer, and I came home, and I walked in that house. And, you know, Sandy's working her program. She's working a good, solid uh, Alcoholics Anonymous program. Almost as good as my Eleanor program. <laughs> so I know it's, it's going to be okay. I walked in to make amends to my wife. And when I walked through the door, I said, Sam, i got to make amends to you. I said, it's a, it, for my part in the argument, it's, it's ridiculous. It was corn on the cob. And she said, Chuck, you're right. Are you hungry? I said, yeah. It's in the refrigerator. There's no my love it's in the refrigerator. Chuck, it's in the refrigerator. I pulled it out. I stuck it in the microwave. When I pulled it out of the refrigerator, it was... The corn cob was in the mashed potatoes, and there was saran wrap over the whole thing. (laughs) She she knows how to detach as well, you know. So I had I had nuked, nuked, and I don't eat corn on the cob by the way anymore. So don't give me any solutions on how to butter corn. I hear it all the time. But you people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you people in Al-Anon, I always say the two because the two are they're separate entities, but they're cooperative entities, and they saved. So many millions of lives that you too have helped us balance out our life. The, the high peaks and the low valleys, the tragedies and the silliness of butter, uh, buttering our corn. You've helped us level that all out of, of releasing our children and welcoming them back. Of, of the gra- you've, you, There's a guy I go to meetings with. Every time he has a meeting, he talks about gratitude. It's, it's always a gratitude meeting. But what a gracious thing we have to be grateful about that these two programs can give us our lives, our families, and our sanity back. Thanks for having me.